that falls into your lap. So, uh, God bless you guys. This is the first Sunday of Advent. We are not doing a first Sunday of Advent Christmas sermon. We'll start that stuff later. Just didn't work out on the schedule. Sorry. Um, but we are doing our last sermon in the series that we've been in for a while. And, uh, I, last chance, anybody brave enough to come up and recite these verses, one verse, and I'll give you a coffee card. I, I don't anticipate that anybody is brave enough to do this. I know, like, the, the microphone, it, like, makes people, like, scared to death. And I, I get that. I remember the first time I preached, oh, my gosh, I was so nervous. And I preached at this place that was kind of like this. It was a very relaxed atmosphere. And I put on a suit for some reason. I just thought, I, oh, preachers wear a suit, so I got a suit on. And that made it worse. I was so nervous. <laughs> but... um Anyway, uh, let me pray before we get started. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your presence here. We pray freedom over this room, freedom over our hearts. We pray by the power of the blood of Christ, by by the presence of your spirit, here in our hearts and in this room, Father, that you would drive away anything that would seek to uh, bring confusion or bitterness or or keep us from hearing what you would have to say to us. We pray that anything that is in this sermon that is not of you would fall away, that you would change it on the spot even, Father. And we pray that anything that you would like to say that, that I haven't thought of, that, that I have not been directed to yet, Father, I pray that you would put it in there. We pray that you would speak, not me. And we pray that in only that weird, strange way that we can't conjure, we can't understand, you would speak to each one of our hearts and that every one of us would walk away from this room feeling like we had met with you today in some way, shape, or form. We love you so much, and we just want to walk with you individually and corporately as your church. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, once a week, God has designed us, as we've been saying, for a day of rest and refocus and refueling and things like that. And um, what we find is that the sort of pace and the priorities of life can be governed by God's rhythm. God's rhythm of life, uh, if, we, if, if in one way, at least in one way, we can start recognizing Sunday as that day of rest as a, as a corporate body, as individuals uh, walking together with the Lord. And in the past weeks, we've learned that Sunday uh, can be the best day of our week. We've said that. We've said that um, Sundays make better Mondays. We've said that Sundays build our families up. We've said that uh, Sundays change eternity. And we had two people pray that prayer last week. And one acknowledged to me later after the service. And today we're going to see how Sundays have changed the world and are, and are changing the world, as a matter of fact. Um, Throughout this series, we've been uh, reading through the, through the um, words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 58, starting in verses 13 and 14, or in verses 13 and 14. It's page 509 on your Bibles, uh, in, in the church Bible there in front of you. If you could turn there with me, I just want to read it one more time, just get this like drilled into our head. 
And this is where uh, God promises this. He says, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord and I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land. And I just want to say that it is possible, I believe it is possible to live a life that, that is signified by riding in triumph on the heights of the land, right? You know, it, it, it's something that I don't think that we, um, we really want to live our lives for Christ. We really want to uh, not be overly flowery, but we want to live in a sense of victory, a sense of understanding that Christ has conquered death and you know, and he is, he is moving forward and we want to move forward with him. Open your Bibles to Matthew 16. Start in verse 13. That's page 669. I took the time to look those up for you guys. Page 669 in those church Bibles. Uh, Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. And just bookmark that for a minute. We're going to come back to that. But while you're turning there, let me just say, uh, this is something I, I really want to drive home today. That I believe the church... I, I believe the church, I'll say it twice, I believe the church, I'll say it three times, uh, God's Sunday people, which you are, have done more good for this world than any other entity, any other group in history. Let me say that again. I believe the church, God's Sunday people, have done more good in this world than any other entity in history, any other group in history. That's a pretty big statement if you think about it. People who can see the future, right, and, and, and sort of shape the future, shape the world in positive ways have, have always impressed me, and I think we would all agree on that. You think about Charlemagne, for instance. He created the first sort of uh, public education system so that people could read. People could read the Bible, as a matter of fact. Patrick Henry fomented the, the uh, revela- revolution by, by declaring, give me liberty or give me death, right? You remember that famous saying? Abraham Lincoln led the United States through the Civil War and ended t- the tyranny of slavery in the wake of a spiritual awakening in America, I believe. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. envisioned people at a, a day when people would be sort of judged by you know, their character and not by their skin color, and he birthed the civil rights movement, and we, we, we celebrate those people. The ability to sort of imagine a better future and to foster the creation of it is a, is a very big gift. It's, it's, not many people have that. They, not every, every one of us has that gift. And when people use those gifts for the betterment of humankind, it is a blessing to the world. It really is, if you think about it. And history is rife with people like that, aren't they? Isn't it? It's, there's a lot of them out there. We can go pick and, pick and choose through the rubble of history and we'll find those people and their names. But the greatest foreseer and shaper of the future was a carpenter from Nazareth, right? His name was Jesus, and we've celebrated him quite a bit. But no one has given the world a greater gift than Christ himself, than Jesus himself. In the uh, sort of closing days of his life uh, on earth, Jesus boldly announced that he would, he would uh, build his church. We've, we've said that a few times in these last few sermons. And that's what Matthew 16, 13 through 18 said. So I want to just read his exact words there. It's Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea. Now, let me stop there. Have I mispronounced that? Come on, Seth. Amen. Everybody gets on my case when I mispronounce words. Caesarea, 
Now I'm doing it. Now that was wrong, right? <laughs> he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And I love, I love this. He says, but what about you? <laughs> what about you? Right? He asked, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. That must have been a wild moment, right? Sitting there when he said that. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, by other people or by anybody else around you, but by my father in heaven. This was a spiritual moment. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, if you were sitting there at that time, if you were like in a bush on the side, you know, like hiding out, and you overheard those words, you might have thought that Jesus was a little bit delusional, right? Maybe. He's speaking to 12 young men. They could have been uh, teenagers for all we know. I think maybe they may, may have been. In an, they're, they're in this out-of-the-way place. They're in this backwater nation, and they're under the oppressive thumb of the, the Roman Empire, How could one little rabbi with 12 young guys create some great movement, right? Not to mention that we know the end of the story that not soon, not long after this, he's going to die a horrible death at the hands of the Romans as well. Yet, still, even after that, you know, we're sitting here in 2019, right? The church he birthed has has improved the world more than anything else, more than anything else. The, the story of Jesus and his church is an underdog story. The author of the I Love Sundays book that we're all supposed to be reading together, maybe you have, maybe you haven't, but he points out that 13 times Jesus says, follow me, follow me, right? His most frequently repeated phrase, which seems to suggest to his followers, followers to imitate his values, his, his actions, you know, the way he does life, follow me, do as I do, think as I think, love as I love, right? And the disciples took his request very seriously, and they started caring for people and proclaiming Christ far into Greece and Turkey and Spain and Italy and India and Africa and and parts in between. And within a century, within a century, Christianity had spread throughout the Mediterranean basin. Wherever they went, they loved people so authentic, with such authenticity, I can't say the other word, their, their faith was contagious. It was contagious. And new religions being uh, illegal in the Roman Empire meant that Christians were persecuted, right? That their belongings were seized, that, you know, Christians were burned alive, they were fed to the lions, they were stuck in the, in the Colosseum and, you know, as practice for the, <laughs> the gladiators. That wouldn't have been a good day, right? But instead of deterring Christianity, instead of deterring Christianity, this drew people to the church. This drew people to Christ. No one could argue about the sincerity of Christian belief when they saw these people given their lives and the movement grew. Jesus rose from the grave 
on that Sunday, right? And so his followers began gathering for worship and refreshment on Sundays, making it their Sabbath, right? And we remember that Jesus taught his followers to love their neighbors, very common thing that we know about, right? Well, turn to Acts chapter 2, verses 44 and 45 in your church Bible. I think it's page 744. Acts chapter 2. This is a familiar little passage But it's an important one if you think about it. In the fledgling weeks of the church, in the fledgling moments of the church's formation, it says this, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. So they they were all together. They had everything in common. They didn't consider themselves to be different than from each other and all that kind of stuff. But they sold their property possessions to give to anyone who had need. Then you drop down to verse 47, the second half of it. It says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Right? We also remember that Jesus taught his followers to care for the hungry. Right? These are pretty common things that we hear about but turn one one more page over to acts chapter 4 verses 34 and 35 and it says this there were no needy persons among them for for from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them brought uh brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need it's kind of amazing No wonder so many people were attracted to these Sunday people, right? These people that worshiped God on Sundays. As they spread to the other parts of the world, from Israel to Syria, they started a church in Antioch. And listen to the uh, one historian's description of what Antioch looked like uh, before Christianity arrived. It says, it was a city filled with misery, danger, fear, despair, and hatred. (laughs) Not a great place to live. A city where the family lived a squalid life in filthy and cramped quarters where at least half of the children died at birth or during infancy and where most of the children who lived lost at least one parent before reaching maturity a city filled with hatred and fear rooted in intense ethnic antagonisms but Once Christianity did appear, its superior capacity for meeting these chronic problems soon became evident and played a major role in in its ultimate triumph. And that story repeats itself yearly in every place, in every country where Jesus' people dwell, where we rise up and we start to, to... answer the needs of society. For example, in AD 260, the entire Roman Empire was hit with a plague which killed somewhere between two-thirds and one-half of the people. And uh, historian Rodney Stark writes this. It says, Dionysius, uh, just said that right, I think, Dionysius, a bishop at the time, wrote, at the first onset of the disease, the pagans, non-believers, right, pushed the sufferers away, right? So they didn't want to have anything to do with anybody that was sick. And fled from their dearest. In other words, even their loved ones. They said, get out of here. If you're sick, get out of here. Throwing them into the roads before they were dead. Think about Monty Python, right? I'm not dead yet. Right? That's, that's what's happening, right? And they treated... Un- <laughs> un- no, that was a... Like, anyway, but... And they treated unburied corpses as dirt. Hoping thereby to avert the spread of contagion of the fatal disease. 
Now, I just want to stop there for a minute and say, where, wherever Christianity does not reign, there is a total disregard for human life. A growing, uh, maybe I should say growing discard for, disregard for human life, which we are seeing in our society now. All right? We're going to look at that in, in the coming months. But uh, I just want to point that out here. You, when, when, they, when they start treating people like this, that's a sign that God is not present in this, this whole thing. And it says, but followers of Jesus nurse the sick and the dying and even spared nothing in preparing the dead for their burial, for a proper burial. In other words, they even respected people that had died. In A.D. 362, Emperor Julian lamented, right? He really was upset that he and his pagan friends, you know, needed to imitate the the virtues of Christians for reasons, he states, their benevolence towards strangers and care for the graves of the dead. They, They support not only their poor, but ours as well. Julian was so bothered that, that people were converting to Christianity because of, of Christians' loving actions, that he launched this campaign to create pagan sort of charities in an effort to match these guys. And it all failed miserably. Why does it fail miserably? Because only people that have the keys to life and death are not afraid of death. Amen, right? That is so true. Only us are motivated to love people to such extremes. I, let me just stop there. This is not in the, written in the sermon. I, uh, for the slides person back there. I, I've told you before that when I was in Aceh and, and, and the, the tsunami hit in 2004, Christmas of 2004, as a matter of fact, I think a day before, a day of, whatever. I, I, I forget exactly when. I went up there and I was working up there for six months. And there, there all the people that were helping were Christians. All of them. Not even the Indonesian government helped. The Saudi government gave $30,000 to, to fix the big mosque in the middle of town. That was it. Turkey was there. Turkey was handing out like 100 lunches a day. That was very pitiful. All right? That's all they did. And Turkey, by the way, is, is, um, is very much in, in the middle. between. It's a struggle between Islam and Christianity and, and stuff. It's on the east and the west, right? But what you saw were the quote-unquote Christian countries. I say that lightly. Don't get me wrong. I'm not sitting here saying, Ooh. I'm just, I'm not making political statements by saying that. Don't write me emails. But I am saying that the, the typical Christian countries were the countries, all those guys were there loving people. And by the way, they wouldn't let America in, in the American ships in. They had to sleep on their ships during the nighttime, but they let everybody else stay in, in, the, in, in Aceh as they helped. But all the Americans had to come in during the day, help and do all this stuff, and then go back to their ships. They didn't want them sleeping on their land. It was crazy. So there, it, you do not believe the revisionist history that you're hearing from everybody that the church is all washed up and we don't care. We, we do care. We do the work, right? Since Jesus rose from the dead, right, way back then, Christians have been serving and and caring in the name of Christ ever since then. That's what we've been doing. That's what what we do, right? 
And on that Sunday that Jesus rose from the dead, he reunited, reunited with his disciples. And after training them for 40 days, he ascended up to heaven. You know the story, right? And then on Pentecost Sunday, the Holy Spirit comes down and Sunday people are born. Suddenly they're, they're, the lights are turned on. Power is turned on. And Sunday became the Lord's Day, Re- Revelation 1.10. And, and as Christians huddled on Sundays and they, they grew in their faith, they went out during the week to love on people and care for people, whoever had need right according to dr james kennedy sunday people invented the modern hospital right all of the hospitals that i know of in indonesia that were had any muster were christian hospitals that had been started by missionaries the they started the university the idea of university gave literacy and education to the masses created free enterprise representative government and civil liberties Sunday people were the ones who abolished slavery in England and in the United States in the, in the wake of a spiritual awakening. You know, these things happened. They, they elevated the status of women. They, they invented the very concepts of charity and benevolence. You have a rich history. A majority of people groups on the earth today had their languages codified by Christians who created their alphabets and translated their Bible, the Bible into their languages, right? The reason Russia has a Cyrillic alphabet is because St. Cyril created it for them uh, so that they could read the scriptures. And that story has been repeated in languages and people groups across the world over time. Take any art history course or, or music history class and, and you'll find that many of the best and most famous pieces uh, were, were, were painted or composed by Christians. We've been Jesus' hands and feet transforming the hurting into helping and the takers into givers and we've seen countless of souls come to Christ over, you know, over this time. In other words, Sundays, Sundays infect people when they meet Christ. Sundays infect people who celebrate them and who in turn go out in the world to do good. We really do. God's Sunday people have and are changing the world with, intentionally, with intentionality through institutions and random acts of kindness every day. Every day. And as I said, people who see the future and shape the world in a positive way are very impressive people. Historically, most have been Christians. Or at least there's been a big, huge Christian influence in the whole thing. Charlemagne, founder of an empire, was motivated to create a public education because he wanted every person in his realm to be able to read the Bible. Patrick Henry, who, the one who shouted, give me liberty or give me death, you know, the cry that launched the American Revolution, did so while standing in, in a church in Richmond, Virginia. Abraham Lincoln, the emancipator of slaves, was a committed Christ follower. Martin Luther King Jr. was a Baptist minister. History confirms, it confirms the church has affected more positive change in our world than any other entity because of the efforts of people like you and me, of Sunday Christians. In your reading this week, there's a story of a church planter named Francis Kamau, if I pronounce his name correctly, who uh, decided to plant a church in Nairobi, Kenya. And when choosing the spot for his church, he, he chose the worst part of time, town where there's just bars and brothels. I mean, I remember when I read that, I think of, uh, oh, what was it called in Thailand? It was a little town in Thailand on the coast that we had to go to. 
for all reasons, a, a missionary conference. But all it was was prostitution houses. It was crazy. And, and I just remember just walking down the street thinking, oh, my God. And I would not go out alone. I was like, buddy, you're coming with me. I'm going to go get something to eat. You're going to come with me. I'm not going to be alone in this town. It was just crazy. Kickboxing places with, with prostitutes. That's all it was. Like, oh, me love you lots. You know, come on in. Watch, watch fight. We're going back. No, I don't do that. Right? <laughs> you know, it was just weird. I didn't, I couldn't, I never would have put a church conference there, but that's where we had it. It was crazy. Um, But he opened his church in this worst place, just like that, where there's bars and brothels everywhere. And within two years of of them starting in, so many people had come to Christ that all the bars and the brothels had had closed down because they had started to find, you know, like a a better life in Christ. They started to live in that triumph, and then they started seeking better lives and healthier professions and things like that. The story of the church, that is the story of the church. Wherever Sunday people go, God goes. Wherever Sunday people go, God goes. And lives change and hope abounds. Hope abounds. And that's what Jesus had in mind. He's not surprised at what we are. I watched this, I'm sorry, just a really stupid video about a book called Unchurched. Dumbest thing I've ever heard. You know, this guy's like, he's just, you know, he's a middle-aged dude that's upset with the church. And he says, oh, I'm not going to go to church anymore. And I'm going to bring everybody into my living room. Yeah, I get it. Little churches and houses. I get it. Yeah. But I don't think Christ is, is surprised that we are sitting here like this in this thing. I think this is a good thing that what we're doing right now. I think God expects us to gather together. And the bigger the churches get, uh, bigger the, the amount of Christians become, the more we're going to have to you know, expand the space. That's a wonderful thing. It's not a terrible thing. I want to plant new churches, but I also see want to see our church grow. Not because I've got some grandiose idea about who Jason is, but it's because the kingdom of God w- compels me to want to bring freedom and love and hope and passion to this world. I want other people to know Jesus. Oh, I'm like all over the place this morning. <laughs> but that's what jesus had in mind when he said i will build the church in his mind jesus saw his people reaching out with love with kindness to help others jesus vision was that his people would gather on sundays to refresh refocus refuel whatever and 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 then scatter out on weekdays to take his love to their neighborhoods and communities that's what he wanted that's what he decided that's what he was calling us to. One pastor said the church is the hope of the world. I think he actually said the local church is the hope of the world. That local church is you in this area. We are local to this area, right? And he's right. Not that we, make, but we, Christ is embodied here. So the, the, the church is the hope of the world because Christ is embodied in the church. Do you know how important you are? That's, that, that's like a pastor's heart, is that his, his church would know how important they are in the kingdom of God. He is right. Jesus, you know, working through Sunday people has altered our world. 2,000 years ago, right, Jesus announced nothing was going to stop him from building his church and that nothing uh, would, 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 would rail against it, and nothing has. And it won't. The church isn't going away. 
Today, the church is about 2.3 billion people strong, and it's growing. But world history isn't over, and we know where it's headed. There are two events to anticipate for people who love Sundays and live them out on weekdays. And I want to show them to you before we close out this series today. So turn to page 847 in your church Bible there. It's Revelation chapter 19, if you have your own Bible. Revelation 19, page 847 in your church Bible. Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9, depicts a day in the future when Jesus will be married to his people in the great marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a wonderful picture, right? And, and the Apostle John describes it this way. So we're in Revelation 9, 19, verses 6 through 9. It says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. His his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And then it says, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Verse 9. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. So when God was looking for a way to picture the joy and the excitement of the day that when Christ would be joined to his people, he described the greatest event available to him, and that was a wedding feast, right? It's going to be a beautiful day when these two get married. It's going to be a great day. It's a celebratory day, right? It's one of the most fun you can have, like, and that's why you use that imagery. The wedding supper of the Lamb will, will be the greatest day in history. It's coming to us, right? It's a real day, which will really happen. The Bible says we will be dressed in fine linen representing the righteous acts of God's holy people. Now, how do you get that fine linen? How do you get that fine linen to wear on that wedding day? Where do you go shop for that, right? Well, you do wonderful, good, righteous deeds in the name of Christ. You live your life for Jesus, right? Now, don't miss this. Don't miss this. Don't take this to be shame on you or anything like that. Because people get to heaven because of grace through faith, right? We memorized these verses before. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It is by grace... Grace you are saved through faith, this not of yourselves, it is a gift of God so that no one can boast. That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? You know those verses. People get to heaven because of grace through faith, not because of some righteous works that they do, right? In a first century wedding, this is why you use this, this, this imagery, in a first century wedding, the first act of a groom was to pay the bride price, to pay the bride price. And Jesus paid that price on Calvary for us, on the cross, right? You are the bride, and you have been paid for. You have been paid for. And once the bride price has been paid, the bride, what does she do? She returns home to prepare for her wedding. That's what she does. She makes everything for her new home, including her wedding garments. If you're a Christ follower... Your price to heaven has already been paid for you. That is the truth. No, now is the time to create your clothes, 
your clothing for the wedding day. And you do that by doing wonderful, loving, righteous acts like Sunday people have always done since this began. Now let me read you one more passage. It's on page 677 in your church Bibles. It begins in Matthew chapter 25, verse 14, and it ends in verse 30. So it's a little lengthy. So page 677 begins in Matthew 25, verse 14. Let me just say, Jesus, just before going to the cross, just before he goes to die for us, he, he told the parable of the talents. And if you don't know, a talent was a huge sum of money. And uh, I want you to follow along as I leave. So read. So that's page 677, Matthew 25, verse 14. Uh, Talking about the kingdom of heaven, it says, It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold. To another, two bags. And to another one, one bag. Each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. And the man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gave five, gained five bags more. So also, the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. And the, and the man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold uh, also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, now, when I read this, I read this sort of like this guy's kind of arrogant, like lazy and arrogant. And he's reading into the master, probably, uh, this is my own personal interpretation, probably things that aren't true about the master, right? Because the master does represent Christ. And so listen to what he says. Uh, He says, I knew that you are hard. You're a hard man. Harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. In other words, he's accusing him of, of, you know, being underhanded, right? So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. So here is what belongs to you. He just hands him back his one bag. His master replies, you wicked, lazy servant. And listen how he would say this. So you knew, right? That's the way I would say it. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Oh, you knew that, huh? Right? Well, then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags, for whoever will be given, who has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them, and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I, I want you to not miss this lesson either. Remember the first lesson, that Christ paid the cost for you, the bride price for you, that that's how you get into good graces with God. It's not through what you do. You know, you, you don't do a lot of good things and, oh, no, you did a good job. Come on in. That's not what we're saying, right? 
This, but the second lesson is this. When life is over, when it's all said and done, whether you die and you meet Jesus later or Jesus comes back before we die, whatever, when life is over, there will be a moment when you are united with your master, your creator, right? And you'll see Jesus face to face. And he will tell you what he thinks of the efforts that you put towards advancing his kingdom. Was your life more important or his kingdom more important in your life? And according to this parable, those who do an outstanding job will hear, well done, and they'll be given incredible rewards. Those who uh, do well will hear, well done, and be given good rewards. And those who serve only themselves instead of the king will hear, you wicked, lazy servant. And notice, all responsibility has been given towards ability. So it's not, you know, an unfair advantage. So we are all gifted in some way. We're all able to further the kingdom in some way. And I, my desire as your pastor and my desire for my own life is that we would all hear, well done from Jesus. That's what I want. I know it's what you want too. I want us all to be dressed in fine linens and to present the Lord with bags and bags of gold, so to speak. So I have one simple suggestion today as we end this this series. Be the church. Be the church as the church has been the church for centuries. Don't believe all the revisionist history about the church. Don't judge the church on a few people that called themselves Christians and gave us all a bad name. All right? Be the church. Judge, judge the church on the women that would go out to the trash piles in Roman society and pick up the little baby girls that people had thrown out. Judge the church on that. Judge the church on the, the only hospital worth any mustard that they would drive all the way from North Sumatra to South Sumatra when I lived there in Lampung was the Baptist church because they cared enough to equip it and, and to raise money for it and get it running and train people well. But when you walked into the other hospitals, there were just people lying on the, on the ground all down the halls, bleeding to death. I had to step over dead bodies in other hospitals. Take your place in history beside the Sunday people of every generation, right? Being the church, let me just say a few things. Being the church means that we seek to get out and love our neighbors. We actually do that. I, I know that's hard. I know it's hard, right? We bought pies from um, Jen. Her daughter was selling pies for uh, Thanksgiving. We bought, we bought one. I, I regret not buying two more and giving them to my neighbors on either side of me. A missed opportunity, right? Good idea, I think, right? Just love your neighbors. Get out there and do it. Being the church means that we listen well, that we take risk, that we act selflessly, and we act with humility. Being the church means that we value life in all ways from the unborn, yeah, I just said it, the unborn to the aged. It's not a political statement, it's a life statement. That we value life from the unborn to even the dead. We care about burying somebody well. When I do a funeral, I want to do that really well. Because I want to honor that person. And I want to honor the family sitting there. 
Being the church means we value all peoples in their ethnic and cultural diversity. I don't believe the church is racist. It can't be. Not with the love of Christ in our hearts. We can't be. We might be idiots sometimes and say things that are stupid. But we don't hate people because of the color of their skin. Right? Being the church means that we support cross-cultural initiatives as a body, such as what we've committed ourselves to as this church in Lebanon and Syria and Morocco and all the work through YWAM that Sammy's doing out there that we support. Being the church means that we love each other well, that we encourage one another, that we keep short accounts with one another, that we serve one another internally as a body. You remember John 13, 35 says, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. They're watching. Being the church means that we intentionally think about uh, how we use our time, talent, and treasures that we actually give 10% of our money, our income, to the local church as a tithe. That we do that gladly, that we do that openly, that we really want God to use that money, and we're grateful to God for what he's given us in our lives. And over and above that, we can give all we want, but at least we do that. That we make distinctive choices to further the kingdom of God according to our abilities as the church. Being the church means, and this is the, the reason I put this last, is because it's the, probably the most important. Being the church means that we are secure in our position with Jesus under grace. That when, I, when you leave here today, I do not want you to leave here with guilt. Like, oh, I'm not doing enough. Oh, I'm, God's judging me. That's not, not what I'm saying. Being the church means that we are joyful in grace, that we are secure in our position with Jesus under grace as found in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Let me just say it again. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one would boast. But that is also followed by verse 10, which says we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Ephesians 2, 10. Amen. Hope you had a good Thanksgiving. (laughs) Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, that you are the ruler of this earth. You are the creator, creator God, the ruler of this earth, that you love your people, that you love this world, that you are in a pursuit of redeeming your family in the in this world, that, that you are marching forward, that you're calling us into that process of loving people well, of speaking truth to them. And we know in a world and a culture that increasingly walks farther and farther away from you, that it's a good chance the more that they will hate those people that speak truth. So, Father, steal our spines. Make us great people of God. Not in prideful ways. Let us love with humility Let's walk uh, with humility. Let's talk with humility. Let's, let's walk and live and speak with respect. Father, just embody our words and our actions and challenge us. Move us higher and farther into holiness and purity and righteousness. We thank you for this.